0: I
1: better get used to the I creep, but still Hello everybody and welcome to At the Elephants episode 10 I'm your host Rob Morris Got a pretty uh, great interview to share with you today If you're in for it uh, Timeline as far as when I recorded this uh, I sat down with Rob Lutfi in July As we were finishing teaching summer session together. Uh, It is now the beginning of September that I am laying this down now. So we just finished Pickle Stock and all that fun stuff. Kids are back to school. You know how it goes. Let me also clarify that I say Rob Lutvee. It says on all the promo stuff, Robbie Lutvee. The guy's name's Robbie to me. When he was going to school here and we were here at the same time, he was Robbie. But here's the other thing. My name is Robbie. That's like my real name like r-o-b-b-i-e robbie birth certificate name comes from my dad robbie right but i go by rob this dude's name is robert he goes by robbie with a y a lot of the time and then you know now he's rob so i'm keeping it robbie with a y because that's the farthest thing away from my name that i can imagine uh out of the equation so that's who he's gonna be he's Robbie Luffy when he's on this show and he could be Rob Luffy out in San Diego or wherever he is speaking of which he's out in San Diego which you'll hear about in the interview but uh yeah you don't want to hear me blabber on about what's going on right now I thought about that and I'll say that real quick I used to think that this would be a good place for me to talk about current events and things going on with the school but you know the more I thought about it you know, so much of this show is listened to way after I make it. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to bother with that. It's all good. Don't worry about it. You know, I'm not going to waste your time with a bunch of chitter chatter for me. From all of the conversations that I've had with people about this show, they just want to hear the interview. I don't have musical guests for you right now. I'm hoping to have them later. I'm hoping to have a lot of stuff for you this season. So, you know, stay strapped in. I have some updates for you soon, and in the meantime, enjoy listening to Robbie Lutfi and I have a conversation.
0: So where are you from? Uh, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Nice. How'd you end up here? Um. You did high school. I did the high school program with Bob Moyer, and... I had, a f- I had two friends that went here for high school and they they kind of shepherded me and uh, mm. told me I had to go if I was interested in this. And then I went the first day, I walk into 226 Moore Hall and um, Robody is sitting in my room playing a guitar with his shirt off. Um, what an introduction. I know. And we became so instant jealous. friends. Of yeah. course. Yeah.
1: I don't know a lot of people that have a story about meeting him that aren't like, and we instantly got along. Like I know, right? <laughs> he's amazing. Yeah, he definitely is.
0: So you were roommates? We were roommates. Uh-huh. And um, been close ever since. Great collaborators. Hey, but you didn't go straight to the college program here. No, I did not. I, um, I thought I wanted to be an actor. And I left, I went to DePaul in Chicago. In Chicago, did you apply and, um, for the college program right out of high school? I did, but I you didn't did get in. Did not get in. Mm, um, it was good in the long run. It was for the best, right? Um, I was young. I was really young, and um, I still I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted a life in the arts, and um, I thought it was acting. And then um, when I was in Chicago. I started to realize more and more that it was probably something else. I didn't quite know what it was, but I knew it was something else. And I had a visual art background before I found theater. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, um, I wanted to be a painter. And what kind of painting did you do, man? I would just sketch, just sketch. Um, but I loved looking at paintings. Hmm. Um, sort of obsessively I I remember my dad we went on a vacation like in seventh grade um to visit a good friend of mine who's still uh, a a mentor in my life who was going to RISD in Providence Rhode Island Mm -hmm. but on the trip we went up to Boston to go to the um Museum of Fine Art and I remember uh, taking my dad around and just like showing him all these paintings um oh, there's the new sergeant. I mean, not the new sergeant. There's a sergeant painting I have to see. And then um, I remember... I remember... (laughs) This is going to sound cliche. I remember taking my dad to this painting by Paul Gauguin. And it was this huge painting called um, Where Do We Come From? What Are We? Where Are We Going? And there was something about, like, seventh grade Robbie looking at it with my dad. And thinking about this artist who's long dead, who's grappling with these huge, grandiose ideas on a canvas. And I could see his brushstrokes. And there was something about, like, I could see his brushstrokes that was so cool to me as a kid. And I knew I wanted to be involved in whatever that expression was, you know. Mm. It wasn't overly intellectual. It was something, an expression of the heart. That he was grappling with, and there's something about that I loved. I only say that to say that when I found directing, it was a culmination of all those things. You know, I knew that I wanted to be a storyteller. I knew that my medium probably wasn't the visual arts, but it was in theater. So do you do you feel like you get to engage in that
1: now, of like leaving your brushstrokes behind? Because our work is pretty ephemeral.
0: Yeah. You're totally right, and that's the kind of beauty of it. I remember, I remember crying after we closed our country is good at NCSA. Yeah, because of how much I loved that class. That was. Um... I was at that show. Really? I was at the final
1: show of that, and I I was a, a mess because that yeah. was the first class that I really saw graduate. Hmm. I saw the class before that graduate as soon as I got there. Oh but 09 was the first, like, class I knew for a whole year. And they were, like, the first seniors I knew, basically. That's, that's like, the role that that class was mm-hmm. for me. And I, I got to know about half of them. But, like, a lot of the
0: ones I knew were in that play. And so, yeah. There's something about John Langs, too. Yeah. That he was the first director I assisted that I went, oh, I can do this. Like, this is a guy I can model uh, craft after. Um And it was after that, I saw Gerald, and I was really upset about closing that show. And he said the same thing. He's like, he took me aside and he said, theater only exists in your heart. And that's what's amazing about theater is that we carry it with us. Hmm. Yeah. Wise man. Yeah, if he had better
1: advice, I'd be doing better (laughs) in my life because, yeah, that's good. That's a good one. And it, it's interesting how, I guess, from what I'm hearing, you've transitioned from, like, the fascination of leaving something behind with, like, the great cathartic experience of releasing things when they're done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that takes a lot of strength, not just to compliment you, but, like, thinking of that as a, a concept, you know? Because mm-hmm. I think that's, I don't know. I remember feeling that way as a young person. Like, not to say I'm not, but when I was younger, uh, of, like, I want to leave something behind so badly. Like, as soon as I was a teenager, it was like, I want to affect things so that when I'm dead, if I don't make it to such and such age, it'll matter that I was here. That was very important to me as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I definitely don't really feel that way anymore. I mean... I do feel like I want to use my time wisely, and all those notions are still there. But, like, if I'm remembered, like... Because now my my consciousness is considering the fact that humanity is, like, this blink-of-an-eye thing and this huge mm. system of whatever, and, like, none of us are making it. You know, that's how I mm-hmm. think about it now. Like, yeah. none of us are leaving an impression on anything. It's like, in a few billion years, we'll be like that thing that happened on that green rock. Like, that's... Whatever. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't say... That I don't like live life with purpose or anything. But you know, to to an extent it is like mm. we're renting everything we have. We own nothing. Like that kind of thing is very So you much feel more like the
0: older it. you get, the more you realize how temporal life is and how small you are.
1: Yeah, and I think it has to do with observation of
0: death. Mm. You know,
1: like some people encounter it more than others, but like I've just known a lot of people who've died, uh, that all of a sudden weren't there anymore. Young and old, mostly surprises. And it's just like Yeah, I just, you know, Mm. I can't help but feel like that's what life is telling me all the time. It's like, dude, like, keep in mind,
0: Mm.
1: it could go. It could go any time. So, like, enjoy what you're doing. Don't waste your time. Like, but also, you know, it's not just about, I think, I think another way you could take that is like, oh, well, then I just want to party all the time. But I don't, that's not how it feels to me. You know, I don't take that away from it of like, oh, well, then nothing matters. I'm just going to live with reckless abandon. It's like, no, there's just not, you just never know when it could be over. So make sure that if you died tomorrow that like, you're like, yeah, life, nice. Mm-hmm. Did did this from here to here.
0: And uh, I don't know. You know, that's, I was reading about, um, for my kids I'm teaching, uh-huh. I sent them this article that Ann Bogart wrote. It was a keynote speech. Um and Les Waters introduced her. I'm not quite sure where it was, but the, the article is called uh, Storytelling in the 21st Century, or the Role of Storytelling. And um, she talks about the dead and how her loved ones have passed in her life and how telling stories is a way to like um, give voice to the dead Yeah. by creating an empathy bridge, she calls it. And I just love that term, like uh, creating an empathy bridge between artists and an audience Right. I tell a story that creates empathy we connect Yeah, which I think is beautiful she also says storytelling is an act of heroism which I think is a beautiful way to describe it
1: yeah no I, I like that too I mean I love I can't help but respect the power of it one, I think once you've been affected by a story like how how can you stay ignorant to the power of storytelling in general Like, it, obviously it has to be told the right way to the right person to make the right impact and all that equation has to add up and that's why we tell stories to groups of people mm-hmm. um most of the time but you know i think you have to recognize the power of that for sure did you exaggerate
0: as a kid what do you mean like when you told stories did you ever exaggerate your own story i tried really hard not to lie Huh.
1: but i did definitely try to like dramatize anything right. that I was yeah if I was telling a story I wanted it to be worth because I noticed that as a kid you have to work twice as hard to captivate an adult's attention and that was a very mm. important thing to me as a child I wanted. I was the kid who wanted to be a grown-up from the time I was born like I, I resented the fact that I had to be a child because it was like there was information I wasn't allowed to have People made decisions for me and as a very young child I felt like that wasn't fair like I felt like a human being like everybody else from a very young age but at the same time I guess I also respected the notion of like adults get to do certain things for a reason you know like uh, there was like a series of behaviors I thought you eventually earned which I guess is true but it was like smoking cigarettes like both of my parents smoke cigarettes they still do Uh, I thought everybody did right like, I thought all adults eventually smoked cigarettes and occasionally had alcohol.
0: Because mm-hmm. that
1: was the environment in my, in my house. Um, cigarettes all the time. And maybe alcohol three or four times a week at the end of a long day a little bit. Like, you know, like, that's just what they did. Uh, and so I assumed that that was everybody. And then I come to find out, like, some people don't drink at all. And some mm-hmm. people don't smoke at all either. And some people don't, you know, do these behaviors that I witnessed because also my parents would hang out with people who did the same stuff. Mm. So it's, like, all my friends' parents smoked cigarettes and drank, like, on the weekends and, like, you know, had, like, uh, barbecues for the cowboy game and, like, drank a bunch of beer all day. And, like, that's just, like, mm. what is down in Texas, and it was totally reasonable and not in a, like, bad way. But, yeah, I just assumed that... I think everybody assumes that their parents are... are the median at least. Right, right. Like there may be some crazier, there may be some less crazy, but my parents are the middle ground. Right. But most people's parents are somewhere on the spectrum, like the chance of that is so much less. Pause. Are you a Cowboys fan? No. Okay, good. No, I've I've never really I've never really had any f- strong feelings about the NFL. Right. I like some baseball teams.
0: You do? Yeah. What's your baseball team?
1: I like uh, I like the Yankees and yeah. I like the the Rangers yeah um, but that's just because I lived in those two places right baseball's a great sport to go to just I'm drink a, a beer be outside I uh, yeah I'm, people.
0: I'm a big fan my dad hates it really yeah my dad hates baseball he thinks it's really slow well that's what makes it amazing to go to because there's these lulls where you can have a conversation right but then go back to it you know yeah yeah, it's a social thing. It's, it is. it's it's
1: a great social thing. I used to go to minor league hockey games when I was a kid and I really liked that. Yeah. Um we there was a in Austin for years and I don't think they're there anymore. Maybe they are. I don't I'm not really sure. But uh for years the there was this team, the Ice Bats. And uh man, we would go to, I I go like to Ice name. Bats games all the time. I don't think we had season passes at one point or my friends did or something like that. and We went like for a couple of years, I was going all the time, and you know what? I don't think I could. I don't think I ever learned a single single player's name. Mm-hmm. The whole time, I didn't care about that. I just mm-hmm. wanted to watch the player, and I didn't even remember like, oh, that's the guy from earlier in the game. Like, I just wasn't that conscious of it because my friends and I would go, and we would like talk and like hang out, and it was like this social thing. We'd run around and like go get a toy thing and play with it, or like go get food and like it was this whole thing and then you would go watch the game and they would just like go back and forth and then sometimes beat each other up and it was like super cool. Right. Uh, but I never like learned a number or learned a statistic or a player's name or like I just didn't care about that. I wasn't dedicated to the team, I was dedicated to the experience of going to a hockey game. And that's how I kind of feel about baseball too. Yeah. it's like, you know, I, I, I know who the Yankees are for the most part, but like I'm usually like a couple years behind recognizing a trade. Like Adams, like
0: oh right, I guess I'm
1: here anymore. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, Well, I appreciate A Rod too because he played for both my teams.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I'm jealous of sporting events. I love sports. Right. But I'm also jealous um, because that kind of crowd you'd never see. Uh, Imagine if that kind of crowd went to uh, theater. A no coward play or right. something. It's like <laughs> it just doesn't exist. I'm right. so jealous of it, though. You know. Right. And in some, I mean, I I love sitting in a dark room and watching a play, and then going and having a great conversation over drinks afterwards. I love it. Sure. A lot of people don't. Right. A lot of people, a lot of people need a beer and they need to talk. They need breaks. Right. And sometimes my dad walked
1: out of the first play I ever directed. Because it was too damn long. And to be fair, Robbie, it was too damn
0: long. What play was it?
1: Uh, But uh, The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. Oh,
0: well, that's a great play.
1: It is, but it was like three hours when I did it. It is not a short play. It is long monologues. But I was new, and I didn't know how to tell all... I had like 14 actors of all ages. Yeah. They were all age appropriate. Like, I didn't have like a bunch of 20-year-olds. I had people that were like 60 and 50, and like, I was like 21, 22. And so I was nervous to tell everybody to hurry up uh, uh, and so and I just didn't really notice it and we had an intermission and I thought oh like whatever but my, yeah he just couldn't handle it because this is not my dad's thing it's it's, it's really right. hard for him to get through theater uh, he finds it all theater for the most part he's not seen a lot of good theater though which is not his fault because uh, I didn't do good theater in the beginning uh, yeah. like you know most people I've ever met in my life oh, yeah. who do it um, but uh Yeah, some people just like need a different environment for a
0: social evening. And you know, no matter what bar you walk into in America, there's always one thing that can connect you to someone there, and it's sports. You could always talk about sports, no matter where you are. I mean, I can't tell them I do this really eccentric job. They'd look at me like, what the? You get paid to do what? Yeah, You know, that exists (laughs) a lot of places. Um, But I don't know. I mean, obviously, people have been... Trying to figure out how do you get blue-collar people to come to plays. Right. How do you get that to I happen?
1: don't even know how to have a conversation with people on airplanes half the time. Because they say, like, what do you do? And I say, like, for a while it was, well, I'm a director. And, like, right now I say I'm a teacher because it's a way easier thing to say. Right. But people say, like, oh, you make movies immediately. Right. And you're like, no, I, I direct theater. And they're like, so, like, musicals? And you're like... I mean, sometimes, but no, mostly plays. They're like, oh, almost like that's a thing. Uh huh. Like,
0: a fucking course, it
1: is. Yeah. Like, yeah, and and there there are more than, well, no, there's not a lot of us. But the point is, is that yeah, it's totally a thing, and uh, you know, not a, not a weird, unsuccessful profession, which is kind of the impression that I, you know, and I shouldn't like give a shit. Uh, and I'm not shameful about it but it is hard when like you explain to somebody like what you do and you're like no this is like a I have a good job that I like kind of worked hard to get and it's not totally
0: oh yeah accessible you need to be to super everybody. resilient
1: yeah it's it's you know I'm doing all right in a very difficult profession but they have no concept of that most people that you talk to anyway that yeah. I've run into on an airplane
0: I remember um I was rehearsing a play for the New York Fringe Festival and we were The writer, the playwright had gone to the new school. Mm -hmm. So we were in one of their studios, which is right by the Labyrinth Theater. Right. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was using these studios. And he walked into my rehearsal. And the only interaction I I ever had with Philip Seymour Hoffman was him walking into my rehearsal and going, shit, and closing the door. (laughs) Because he was the wrong room. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's where I think
1: most of the... When it says in the front of the plays, I think that's the, the space where they work at. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's where he does that. Did that. Um, that's crazy. Yeah.
0: That's not a bad story. No. What a great actor. Yeah. The, no, no, no. My, one, my, my two favorite actors, really, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robin Williams. Oh. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's been a rough time. Yeah. A very emotional day is both of those. Mm-hmm. I think the first, and it, it hit me so weird, I told my dad about this recently, he was like, really? He was very skeptical he's like, I just find it so hard to believe. And I told him that the first celebrity death that really moved me, the, one that, the first one that really like broke my heart, but I wasn't really at a place emotionally old enough to like cry or anything, uh, was Chris Farley.
0: Because oh, wow. I,
1: I was a fat kid. Huh. And like a fat, funny kid. And he was my hero on a huge level. Like, I liked Jim Carrey as a kid. I loved Robin Williams as a kid. But Chris Farley felt like my hope uh, to be yeah. somebody. Like, yeah. Because he was big. And so, uh, and had a lot of energy, and he made up for the fact that he was big by not being slowed down by it.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: That was because of something I didn't understand. Right. But that's what I saw, and so that's what I thought, you know, was so inspiring for me. Uh, And that that hit me hard, but the first one that really got me, that really, like, I wept because I thought I'll never get to see him in any capacity was George Carlin, Mm. and he wasn't even young. Yeah. But when he died, I really, because he was still, he had just shot like a new special or had just been on tour. He had just worked like a couple weeks before it happened. He was still working. And so I was really expecting to be able to see him at some point. And it was at a point in my life where I was like, just, I'm, I'm, the next chance I get, I'm going to see him. Uh, I just turned like 19. So I was just able to like go do stuff like that. And I was like, I'm going to go see George Carlin. And then he died. And it was like, damn it. Wow. It just like hit me. And then, you know, it was definitely came from a selfish place of like, oh, I wanted to see him so bad. Yeah. Uh, but it was just like, I didn't know, that had never happened to the capacity of like, oh no, they're gone.
0: You know, I never, not, haven't thought about this in a while, but I think I was devastated when Princess Diana died. Really? I think because it, it was so public.
1: Yeah, I remember. And they
0: played her funeral over and over and over again on television. And that uh, Elton John song it. was on
1: the radio. And the Elton every John song.
0: And I it, also my mother's name is Diane, so well there you go. She had a connection with her, I think, and so maybe that was part of it as well. Um, hmm. Yeah, think- I'm the, I'm the same way about Peter Brook. Peter Brook was his his books have been such an influence on my me my work that I know he's old, and I feel like it would be a shame if I don't just get to meet him one day right. before he goes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I definitely have because before, it's interesting how this business makes you feel like, no, I could go meet these people eventually. Yeah, like I'll figure it out. Yeah, once. there's hope. Yeah, you know it more so than people like, oh yeah, that would be crazy. Like it's not like no, I'd really like to get in the room with this person before they're dead and actually shake their hand once and maybe even tell them like, hey, for what it's worth, you changed my life and inspired me. Yeah, um, you know John Stewart. Mm -hmm. I tried really (laughs) well because I went to the show I went to the daily show and I was in the VIP section but it was uh, it was John Oliver's third right uh, show so he didn't even do a lot of crowd work before at all Um, because he was he was working on trying to get the show right and not screw it up and he was a little nervous and justifiably so yeah Uh, but uh, so it was a different experience but I I did everything I could to try to be there Uh, and now he's leaving but, uh, so I what, gotta figure something else out.
0: Do you... Why do you think there's no conservative Jon Stewart? What do you mean? Why there's no...
1: No, like... Conservative like funny conservative person. Like, conservative comedy news? Yeah. Because I don't... I mean, what do you think, Robbie? I don't think they have a sense of humor about themselves like that. There's, some, there's gotta be some conservative who does. I mean, probably. I don't know. I. You know what? You know what, to tell you the truth? I think that, like... I think that the like Fox News has a large number of their like pundits and different people who are on their network who think they're funny and other people think they're funny too and I don't think we think they're funny. No. You know, but they're also not like comedy is always going to lean to the left mm. in general as an industry as a business mm. because because so does theater because so does entertainment like it's just just how it is and and to tell you. My opinion on it, I think it's because all of those mediums lean towards the truth and they they, they look at things as like, look, let's de- not deny the truth of the situation. it's this and that. And I think the current like conservative America mm-hmm. is kind of all about denial of truth and denial of, of just the raw hilarity of how some things are, are ridiculous. You know, it's a very serious
0: thing. It's like they're, you know, all that culture right. clings to that
1: because right? they don't
0: laugh at themselves. Like you never yeah. see Lindsey Graham or Ted Cruz laughing at themselves,
1: right? And when they do, it's it's laughable because right. they're doing it in in spite of it, or you know, yeah, exactly. It's it's something. It's also because their views are so extreme to this other side. I think maybe that. But don't you can't think
0: that it. the left, we we become so polarized? Don't you yeah. think we become extreme, too, in a sure, way? no, of I course. I mean, I'm totally happy with it. But no, of course. I yeah, I think that's part of it, too. I, I think... Go ahead. No, I, I, I remember at NCSA, I remember seeing this poster when I was at school here, and it, it, it was about the conservative artist club or something on campus, and someone had someone had graffiti at the top of it and said conservative art is not art. Hmm. I just thought that was interesting. I'm like, I just really think about it. Like, is that uh, true? Is that, well, maybe you do. I mean, can you create, cons- what does that mean, conservative art? Because art by nature is, exploratory. is exploring, is deconstructing, is pushing the form, is, right. you know. But I guess you're like, you're looking at those words and you're defining them a little bit, a little bit differently than...
1: Yeah, I guess so. But it's still, like, the notion of being conservative is... is, Safe. uh, Yeah, it's safe, and it's doing the right thing. And
0: it's... uh, Is that what it means? I don't think politics... Conservative means... That word means something else, though, right?
1: I mean, I don't know. I don't
0: think of them as safe, and... I think that they're safe behind their
1: ideals, and that's what they think. Interesting. I don't think it's true. I don't Mm -hmm. think they are safe. But I think that, like... You know, it's, it's, it's the conservative side now, the, the, the conservative right in America is all, it seems to be, to me, focused on conserving these traditional values. That's how they label it. uh, Which to me is archaic language for saying that it's, we don't want to change. We don't want to adjust, you know, and then. Fiscally, the other big side of it, the economic notion, the social notion of, like, you know, personal liberty, and they're worried that the government's going to take over, and the, and they're worried that, that they're becoming enslaved by their government, and I think that that's... I don't know what that's based on. Hmm. You know, and the arguments I hear, like, oh, they want to take our guns away, just like Hitler did before he took over the country, and, like, does our... Does our social and political situation really reflect a fascist regime right now because it doesn't feel that way to Mm -hmm. me and i've never felt that way to me my entire life not even under bush Mm -hmm. not certainly not under clinton man that was like a party i remember being a kid and just watching the news and they were like there was some rough things that happening but mostly the you know things are good we got (laughs) money like Mm -hmm. you know business is growing we've got the number one ball you know that, that felt like a great time and then we had that time when it was like oh wow this is great and then all of a sudden it got really dark for a really long time and now it's feeling like we're on the road to something good again but there's just all this resistance there's all this resistance of like no 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 let's not make social progress let's not take care of our people and let's Mm. make sure rich people stay rich and make sure that being poor is as hard as possible you know i don't get it it's something that's difficult for me to understand
0: Hmm. Um so you're living in San Diego. Right? Are yeah. You moving? Um, I'm moving to San Diego, yeah. When do you get there? July twenty-fifth. What you doing? I'm I'm go what am I doing when I get there? Yeah. I'm going to see the opening of Dogfight. Um, that the artistic director Sean Murray directed. Nice. And Alex Heffler and Pat Osteen are in. Right. Um, and then I'll start work.
1: Yeah.
0: Are you working at the Signet?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Sweet.
0: Yeah. I took a a full-time job as their associate artistic director. That's awesome, dude. Direct plays and... You know,
1: direct plays and shit. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Direct... Well, that's the incentive for me, was that what they offered was not just a... um, a salaried desk job. Right but they also offered me cre- a creative outlet. I could still direct plays. I could in what's amazing about being in one place is that I get to have a continued dialogue with that community, which is important to me. Because when you're just a hired gun, it's like right when you get right when you get used to a town, right when you get to start having these connections where you're having great conversations, you leave, right? And you don't really get to be a part of those conversations anymore. Right. Um, and you're very much interested in being a part of a community. Yeah, for now, yeah, right. totally. I am. I, I want to explore what that is.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it's. I think, I think you got to do that from time to time. You you got to start putting down some roots in at least, yeah, a couple places.
0: But I never thought that would happen at my age. I mean, like, really? I never. I thought eventually I'd be like settle down, have the job. I thought I'd be. How old are you? Twenty nine. But I, I lie about my age so much. Really? Oh, yeah. What Sometimes I, like, forget who I told what to. Because if I direct, you know, when I was directing a play, plays in my mid-20s, I would always lie up. Always, always lie up. Say I'm in my 30s. Wow. Yeah. Did it work? I would get more respect. When you say, oh, I'm in my 30s, you get more respect from people you're directing that are in I their 50s. I consider lying
1: about my age. Maybe I should start doing that.
0: Yeah. It's residual from what we were talking about earlier about, like, exaggerating growing up. Right. (laughs) Making the story more interesting.
1: Right. Or whatever you need it to be to get where you need to go. Right. Right. Yeah. Because I've always kind of felt that way, I guess, because I did a lot of that when I was growing up as I... I didn't want to exaggerate stories, but I lied about my identity constantly, like where I was from and, and my background. Did you still. travel a
0: lot? I find people that travel a lot yeah. always say, like, they, each place they move new, they create a new narrative for their lives. I
1: did that a lot, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I moved constantly, and, and it was always, like, whoever I thought that community would embrace.
0: Oh, That was yeah. the idea.
1: It was like, oh, you'll like me if I'm this, like... You know, when I first moved to New York in high school, I told people I was, like, Italian. I'm not at all. Mm. But I just thought
0: that you can I, I could in. have some
1: identity. Like, what identity do you have in a New York public high school with someone from Texas? Right. I didn't want to be that guy, you yeah. know? Uh, and I, I couldn't not be from Texas, but I, I could be something else. You know? Uh, yeah. It's weird. It's weird how you're, like... Because you have to cling to something. You have to find some sort of connection to where you are.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Do you still do it? Do I still what? Lie about how old you are? I try not to as much anymore. No. Um, No. I do. I know what you're talking about, this thing. Like, what do you identify? I identify myself as a guy from the South. Right. If I'm identifying as anything. But I directed a play that was about um, Lebanese immigrants, and my uh, on my father's side, my great grandparents were Lebanese, and um, my last name is Latvi. It's a Lebanese name, hmm. and I found that the. People were, the way I started talking about the play, people started. sort of, I would mention, oh, and my great-grandparents were Lebanese, and they would always want to pitch the story to go that way. Oh, well, this is you connecting to your, your heritage. And I was like, no, I have no, I didn't even realize that until I was in high school. My, you know, I didn't, no, I don't I, identify as Lebanese whatsoever. Right. At all." Um, but it's interesting that a, a, as an American, you, you know, you, you try and cling to, for some reason, it's more exotic to say, oh, I'm, I'm, right. a, I'm a quarter um, French or whatever. whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I know I'm an American. When do you get to say, like, I've, i my, g- these number of generations have lived here and I am now an American. Well, and you when know? you spend your time, I think you, when you spend your time in California or on the, like,
1: Northeast coast, you don't want to say you're from the South.
0: Oh uh, yeah, I don't necessarily,
1: yeah. and people from there don't even understand that the tech that Texas isn't even really like the South, right. and Austin is unlike anything they think it may be right. because it's in Texas, like it's it's like its own little weird island of like it's not really the South, it's not really the Southwest, it's yeah. not really Texas, it's Austin, it's like a yeah, very, and that's where I grew up. So, but people don't get that at all if they've never been there or spent any time there. So, it's easy to label it's and make easy assumptions. To ju- yeah, it's easy to like. put a different label on yourself because you want to convey who you are and not what their idea of you is going to be based on other people they've met from the same place or misconceptions they have about it. It's better to just, I don't know. Yeah. Slap something else over the name tag, you know? Oh, you're
0: from the South. You don't really have an accent. Right, exactly. It's like, yeah. Aren't you from the Bible Belt, Tobacco Road? You you don't, I hear you say y'all sometimes. Y'all is just such a good phrase. Yeah, that's all right. You don't like y'all.
1: I don't say it as much.
0: Huh? I don't mind it. Yeah.
1: I like you guys. Use guys. Use guys. Yeah. That one's good too. Uh, but I not enough. I don't have enough of that.
0: Huh?
1: No, you guys.
0: Well, thanks for talking to me, man. Yeah, dude. It was a lot of fun. Do we talk about interesting things?
1: I think so. It was, it was definitely stuff. Cool. Yeah. For sure.
0: Yeah, a bit. yeah. So I've been reading. About nameless things Don't ask me what they are Nietzsche, dub, not Zara, the spoke Boy, you have done your wrong